Good morning, friends. I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point, and so glad to have you here worshiping with us today. We're going to read the Word of God, so I'm going to invite you to stand back up again in honor of Scripture so we get to do this. So you'll see on the screen the underlined parts. You know what to do. All right, here we go. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to court before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that how much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were you were in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. So this passage is dealing with a problem in the church. Remember that we're going through 1 Corinthians, and the theme has been restored, and Paul is calling the church back to be the church, to live as God's restored people. And a number of different issues he's already brought up in this book, but now he's bringing up a problem when a Christian will say to another Christian, see you in court. And that's a problem for the Apostle Paul, a problem with lawsuits between believers. And the language that Paul uses in this language is passionate and strong and confrontational. Listen to these phrases that Paul uses and just see the emotion that he has. Verse 1, how dare you? Verse 5, shame on you. Verse 6, in essence, he's saying, this is unacceptable. And verse 7, what a defeat and what a failure. You get the idea? Paul feels pretty strongly about this, don't you? Kind of get that idea. The key word in chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, is the word judge or judged. It's used nine times in the original text, and uh, three times just in verse 2. The word means to pass judgment, to engage in judicial process, to hail someone into court, to hand over to judicial punishment. The noun was used for a lawsuit or legal action. And the passage seems to be focused on civil issues rather than criminal charges. Paul has made it really clear in Romans 13 that God has entrusted human government with the responsibility for criminal charges. Romans 13 makes it really clear, verses 1 to 7. Criminal court in the Roman world dealt with violation of law like treason or murder. Actually, adultery in the Roman culture was punishable by, uh, by death. And that was one of those that, that the criminal laws would deal with, uh, causing riots, revolution, or counterfeiting. All of those would be dealt with as criminal. But this is a civil case. The Romans had an interesting term when they were dealing with civil cases. In Latin, it was this word, vexatious litigation. 
What it really meant was that if you were in a civil case, to win the case, you had to attack the character, ethics, and behavior of the person you were attacking. So it became nasty. It became really, really difficult. And this, you need to understand, this was a shame-honor culture. There's still cultures like that, for instance, in Asia today. It's a shame-honor culture. Parts of Africa are shame-honor culture. I think sometimes in America we don't have any shame anymore. But the, but the shame-honor culture was going on in the Roman world. So he's addressing this issue in a culture like that. And slander, to be slandered by someone in a court, well, you would, if, if you lost the case, you would walk out with shame that you would never recover from. And so it was, it was difficult. Interesting, though, that when you understand how the court system worked with civil courts, the judge and the jury were brought by landowners or people of wealth who had status. They had a high status in society. And they were the ones, often the people of status in society, the, the upper echelon of the, of the culture would be those who would bring the lawsuits. Matter of fact, it was illegal for someone who was a tradesman or somebody who was, um, was just a, a common ordinary citizen or a slave to bring any charge against someone in that level. And if they did bring it against them, they would almost always lose because the judge and the jury would protect the, the standing of that person in that honor culture. You need to understand that that's part of what's going on. So people without status couldn't bring a lawsuit. This would be dealing with issues of property damage, breach of contract, fraud, personal injury, disputes of various kinds. And so corruption was rampant in the Roman system. Paying under the table, money spoke. And so that's what what happened. And they were bringing, according to chapter 6, verse 1, they were bringing this issue, believer against believer, brother against brother, bringing a grievance or a lawsuit, he said, you're going to law before the unrighteous, those who don't have a standing with God of being justified by God's grace, and those who don't have a a sense of God's justice, you're bringing it to them. And then in verse 6, he says, you're bringing it to unbelievers. So Paul's challenge to them is what you're doing is wrong because rather than bringing it to the saints, Rather than bringing it to the people of God, you're actually bringing it before an, an, an unrighteous, an unbelieving judge. And he says that's a problem, and he's going to explain why that's a problem. Now, one thing you need to know, a saint means someone who's been set apart by God in a new relationship with Christ, set apart as holy. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I just want to tell you something, you are a saint. Maybe you've never thought of yourself that way, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says to the church of Corinth, you are saints, and they were a hot mess, so if they could be saints, we're saints, all right? So turn to someone next to you and say, good morning, saint. There you go. Thank you very much. So Paul is addressing this issue, and in this this passage from verse 1 to verse 11, Paul asks no less than 10 questions. As a matter of fact, there's not many passages in, in 1 Corinthians when he does this. Ten questions. It's like Paul is a lawyer in a courtroom, and he's questioning. He's questioning using rhetoric, using oratory, exactly what you'd expect from a lawyer. That's what he's doing. And he's confronting this issue. And and, uh, Paul is like, I want to just play this out like we're in the courtroom of the church. And so in verses 2 to 3, he raises this question. He says, we should deal with this as the church. Six times in this chapter, 
Three in the passage we're looking at today, Paul says, do you not know? Look at verse 2. Do you not know? Verse 3, do you not know? Verse 9, do you not know? In other words, he's challenging them. Don't you understand? Don't you get it? Don't you know what you need to be doing here? And he's confronting now not just the individual, but the Christian community. He's seeing this as shameful and incompatible with their call of Christ and with what it means to be the kingdom of God. Look at how he argues his case here. He said, don't you know the saints, that's the believers, will judge the world? And if the world's to be judged by you, are you not sufficient or competent to try trivial cases? Now, when he says trivial cases, he's not saying it's not important to the person with the case. He's saying it's not important in the light of eternity. It's trivial by contrast with what is eternal. Don't you know that we are to judge angels? Notice what he says here. We're going to judge nations. We're going to judge angels. How much more the matters pertaining to this life? So trivial cases, issues of this life, we should be able to judge if we're going to judge nations and we're going to judge angels. Now, maybe, friends, your view of heaven and eternity is a little bit like this. I'm going to be floating on a cloud with wings and a halo and a harp. Friends, if that's your view of eternity, you've been watching too many cartoons and not reading your Bible enough, because that's not what I see in the Bible. What I see in the Bible right here is that we will be in the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. We're going to be actually responsible to serve under Christ's rule in a judicial responsibility. Saints, believers are going to do that. And we're also, get this now, we're going to judge angels. I believe that's talking about fallen angels that we're going to judge under Christ, and we're going to do that. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2 says we're going to rule with Christ. And so Paul's argument is this, hey, friends, If you're going to judge nations and you're going to judge angels, are you incompetent to deal with the most trivial, everyday issues of life? And the answer ought to be, no, we should be able to do that. We should be able to do that. So he reminds them of that. And he says, listen, there's something important here. We need to protect the unity of the body and resolve legal issues between believers through wise arbitration. Now, sometimes what I've actually seen happen in the church is sometimes you have a believer from another church maybe not in that church, and even then getting a lawyer who really believes in binding arbitration can settle that case outside of court, not bringing it before unbelievers, an unbelieving judge, an unbelieving jury to be able to do that. And so he says we need to do this. We need a fair process in the binding authority to do that, not ignore that. Look at verse 4 and 5. He said, if you have such cases, such legal cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? So Paul's using a little sarcasm here. Remember that in the Roman jurisprudence, the practice of law, you have have people of status that are the ones who are the judge, the jury, and usually the one who is bringing the case. And Paul says, listen, don't you have somebody of low status that can handle this in the church? He's kind of in your face to the whole process that they were resorting to. Somebody of low status in the church should be able to handle this. That's what he's saying. And he asked a question. He said, I say this to your shame. Again, a shame honor culture. He said, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's not one among you wise enough to dispute between the brothers? 
In other words, it's like Paul shouting out, isn't there a wise man in the house? Anybody here who can discern the will of God? Wisdom was a high value to the Jews and to Christians. You see, wisdom was, was someone who feared God, who reverenced God, worshiped God, respected God's authority, placed themselves under that authority, and learned to be able to apply knowledge, biblical truth, with insight, understanding, to the issues of life, application. A, a wise person had biblical truth, knowledge, understanding, and they could apply it to life. They were someone who has learned the skill of living by thinking God's thoughts and choosing God's paths. And throughout the Old Testament, we have just sections of the Bible filled with wisdom. The book of Proverbs, ob obviously a treasure chest of wisdom. If you haven't read through Proverbs, the wisdom of God just oozes from that book. Other parts of the wisdom literature, Job about suffering, Ecclesiastes about the purpose of life, and Song of Solomon about marriage. That's all wisdom literature. Some of the Psalms are wisdom Psalms, like Psalm 1. The prophets spoke of the wisdom of God, applying the truth of God to life situations. And you have people in the Bible who had wisdom. People like, for instance, Abraham, who with wisdom was able to arbitrate a situation with Lot with difficulty. You have people like Moses who demonstrated wisdom, and Joseph who rose because of his wisdom to responsibility in the government of Egypt. You look at other people here and see people like David who had the wisdom to be able to deal with King Saul, and Solomon who had great wisdom. God gave him a carte blanche and a blank check prayer request. He said, anything you want. And, and Solomon says, I choose wisdom, and God was pleased with him. A problem with Solomon is when Solomon lost the fear of God, he lost wisdom. He began to multiply wives in, in disobedience to God. And, and his wives led him into idolatry. And, and if, you, if you look at uh, Solomon's life, wisdom, 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 folly, 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 folly. Friends, the fear of God is foundational to wisdom, and he lost that. Wisdom, wisdom. Daniel, a person of great wisdom. Daniel, a fugitive, a captive in Babylon, rises in responsibility because of his wisdom to actually advise three emperors in several different kingdoms. Just incredible, the wisdom that Daniel had. So you have that kind of wisdom. And, and what, what Paul is saying, isn't there a wise person in the house who can handle this kind of dispute? Jesus, my friend, is the greatest of all wisdom. Matter of fact, in Proverbs 8, he is wisdom incarnate. In Colossians 2, in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Even 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in him there is wisdom. Friends, you want to be wise? Spend some time in the Word of God. Let the Word of God speak. Let the Word of God transform your mind. God wants every believer in Jesus Christ to be a person of wisdom. And friend, you don't become wise without the Word of God. That's why you've got to spend some time here every day so you learn to think God's thoughts. You see, for me, reading the Bible isn't because I'm paid to do so. Reading the Bible is like a lifeline for me. I need the Word of God so I can think God's thoughts and make good choices every day. Friend, you need that too. You need the Word of God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all time, said, I want the Bible to be so much a part of my life that when someone cuts me, I bleed bibline. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. When you cut me, I bleed. So isn't there a wise man in the house that can handle this? And then Paul, in verses 6 to 8, says, better to cut your losses than to have the gospel lose. Look at how he argues this. He said, listen, 
But brother goes against brother. As a matter of fact, all through this passage, he uses the phrase one another, the saints, brothers, to talk about the issue. His brother is going to log taking someone into court against another believer and that with unbelievers. He said to have lawsuits with one another, you've already defeated even before you start the case. You've already lost. Why not rather, he says, suffer wrong? And why not rather be defrauded? In other words, why not rather lose out than to do this? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brother. So in in, in those last two verses, Paul is saying, some of you need to get this, that it is better to cut your losses than to have the gospel lose. And some of you need to say, I'm willing to be wronged rather than have that happen. And some of you need to say, you know what, I'm, I'm trying to cheat somebody else to get a little bit more money, and I need to stop doing that. He, he, he actually challenges both sides of the issue. To deprive means to take away through illicit means, to steal or to rob. To, to wrong means to hurt or to harm something that's undeserved. And so Paul confronts both of those. See, for Paul, there's something more important than money. There's something more important than property. There's something more important than winning in court. And here's what he says. These three things are more important. The unity of the body of Christ. For Paul, the unity of the local church, the unity of the body was so important. He says, you'd be better off to cut your losses than to somehow harm the unity of the body of Christ. Secondly, he says, you'd be better off to cut your losses than to be able to negatively affect the gospel. So here's two believers going to court before an unbelieving judge and an unbelieving jury, and they're saying, I thought you were both Christ followers, and here you are fighting with one another. Friends, the gospel gets compromised in that. So the unity of the church, the centrality of the gospel, and the glory of God, the glory of God gets defamed when that happens. Paul's saying, listen, this is really important. That's why he calls them trivial things and things of this life, because by comparison, these things are just much much more important. He says you ought to be willing to deal with this through arbitration. Our concern should be the unity of the church, the advancement of the gospel, the glory of God in the community. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we should do all to the glory of God. And friends, if that's true in the simple, everyday, mundane things of eating and drinking, then it's certainly true here. So friends, when it comes down to taking another Christian to court in a lawsuit, Paul is saying there's something more important going on here that we need to think about, we need to consider. We need to to think about cutting our losses rather than having the gospel lose. And friends, we we need to really consider that. The last thing that Paul says in this passage is remember your transformation. Remember your transformation. Look at verse 9. Third time he says, do you not know that the unrighteous that are those who have not been justified by the grace of God in Christ through faith, will not inherit the kingdom of God. At the very end of that passage, he, uh, he says in verse 10, you, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So twice in this passage, he brackets this, this statement he's making. He's saying these kind of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. In the New Testament, you'll sometimes have a list of vices or sins and a list of virtues or Christ-like character. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, virtues. The the works of the flesh, uh, vices. Here you have a list of sins or vices that Paul's going to address. And some of the same ones that he addressed back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
He said in verse 9, he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedies, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now look what Paul does in chapter 6. He has the same list in a little different form. He said, don't you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. In other words, don't be deceived by their false profession of faith. Neither the sexual immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality or thieves or the greedy or drunkards or revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So in this list of sins, Paul deals with sexual sins He talks about those that are immoral. That's the word from which we get the word pornography. It was a word that originally had to do with prostitution, but it became to the Jews an umbrella word that had all kinds of sexual sin, like incest and uh, and homosexuality and premarital sex and all of those kinds of things, prostitution, bestiality. There's, There's a long list in Leviticus 18 if you want to see all that's covered by that. It's a big word. It's the word pornea. He says... He says that that kind of thing, that person is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He also talks about adultery, which is a person who's married having sex with someone other than their partner, just to make that clear what that is. He said those who practice homosexuality. In the Greek text, that's actually two words. One is for the person, it simply means effeminate, the passive partner in that relationship. The other is a word which means uh, intercourse with men, which is the active partner in that homosexual relationship. Friends, we need to understand there are people that struggle with homosexual attraction that haven't sinned by actually doing that. But he's saying if you're involved in that, it's like these other sins that are listed here. It is sin. No matter what our culture says, God hasn't changed his mind. He also then talks about um, people who are involved in idolatry. So in both lists, he uses the word idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping anyone other than the true and living triune God of the Bible or worshiping another God alongside the true and living God of the Bible. It can mean embracing a false philosophy. It can mean actually worshiping some of the deities of this world. And in our culture today, we have a very eclectic spirituality where people bring a piece of Hinduism or Buddhism, and they bring it together. That's idolatry, he's saying. That's idolatry. He then talks, though, about some of the legal financial things here about corrupt business practices. He addresses thieves, people who rob other people. The covetous means someone that's greedy, having to desire to have more than is, than is really due to them. Um, he, he talks about those who are swindlers. That's a word which means of a, a wolf who is, is aggressive and swindling other people out of things. So Paul's addressing this, and he says, listen, if that's true of you, then you are, you are in a bad place. And lastly, he deals with lifestyle issues, drunkards, people who are alcoholics, people who are, are, are intoxicated, and revilers, which are abusive slanders. And Paul says, if that's true of you, then you're not a part of the kingdom of God. You're not a part of the kingdom of God. Well, friends, you need to know that before the watching world, the church needs to look at the, in the light of Scripture and say, if that's true of me, then I need to change. Because it's giving a lie to your profession of faith. One day when I was pastoring in Sandusky, Ohio, 
we were planting a church in Port Clinton just across the bay, and I was over there just knocking on some doors one afternoon to try to introduce people, get to know them, and invite them to our gathering that we had. Knocked on the door, guy who worked in the third shift was, was up and having his morning coffee and afternoon, and um, I'm, I, he invited me in, and we began to talk. In the middle of the conversation, it was going well, I was beginning to share the gospel with him. He put his hand up and he says, stop. What church did you say you're from? I said, Calvary Baptist Church in Sandusky. He said, you can leave right now. I said, sir, it's your home, and I'll do exactly what you ask, but can you answer me one question? Why? What did I say or do to offend you? He says, not you. He says, I work at General Motors. There's a guy from your church that also works at General Motors, and I see him stealing from the company and putting parts in his lunchbox and taking them home. That night I went to the home of that church member. I said, I just want you to know, here's what I heard today, the story I heard about you and General Motors. And you robbed me of the opportunity to share the gospel with a lost man today because of your sin of thievery. Friends, there's probably some people right here that are stealing from their companies, either financially or other things. Don't do it because people are watching. People are watching. So he says, listen, these are the things, the, the, these things of, of sexual sins and idolatry and corrupt business practices and lifestyle. He says, these are things that are the past of the church, but they're not who you are. I, I, I love the way Paul ends on a high note. I want you to catch this. Verse 11. Such were some of you. Past tense. In other words, in the church in Corinth, you had people who had been involved in immorality and idolatry and adultery and homosexuality and thieves and greedy and drunkards and, and revilers and swindlers. Matter of fact, they could have had a small group for each of them. This is who you were. That's past tense. But here's who you are. Watch this. Such were some of you, but you were washed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that takes away all sin, friends, all the shame, all the guilt. Such were some of you. He said you were also sanctified. You are set apart as holy by God. You are justified. You are declared righteous before God. You're declared righteous before God. And friends, what you used to be is not who you are now. It's interesting, when we try to apply this passage to our lives today, we need to understand our court system is not in every way the same as the Roman system. Our Constitution, Bill of Rights, claims to believe in the rule of law, not the rule of the elite. And that a jury is to be made up of people that are normal citizens. Uh, and, and we also understand that corruption, the ability to hire more expensive lawyers, can put someone at an advantage. We know that insurance companies can force people to, into a, a lawsuit that they would prefer not to be a part of, and, and either settling things out of court or in court. That others can sue you who are professing believers, and you have no choice but to deal with that. However, our concern should be for the unity of the church, the advancement of the gospel, and the reputation of believers. So here's five things I want to leave with you. Five things I want to leave with you from this passage. Number one, resolve issues between believers through reconciliation or arbitration. Whenever you can, choose to resolve issues between believers, legal issues, 
by saying, can we get somebody, can we reconcile this ourselves? If not, can we get a lawyer or some other wise person to be able to do binding arbitration? Here's the other thing. Our future hope should change our present life and relationships. Paul says, listen, your future hope in the kingdom of God has changed your relationship with sin. And your future hope that you're going to judge nations and angels should change your relationship in dealing with these kind of things. Friends, Bible prophecy is not impractical. It's incredibly practical and incredibly important. Paul says your future hope should change your present life and your relationships. And third, we should be willing to accept loss rather than harm the testimony of Christ. Our greatest concern shouldn't be this. Our greatest concern should be him. Protect the unity of the church and the reputation of God in the community. Do everything we can to make sure that the testimony of Jesus Christ outside of the church reflects the love and the unity that's inside the church. I know that sometimes the church can be a bit of a challenge. But friends, I want you to know, I'd rather be part of the people of God than any place else. I'd rather be part of the people of God than any place else. I mean, I saw, a, I saw a picture of two porcupines in Alaska trying to get together to get warm. And the caption said they need each other, but they needle each other. Sometimes that happens. But we do need each other. Protect the unity of the church and the reputation of God and community. And here's the last thing. Remember your transformation to live a transformed life. Remember your transformation, friends. Such were some of you. God doesn't want you living under the shame and guilt of your past. As I was reading that list of sins, some of you said, that was me, that was me, that was me, that was me. But friends, if you've trusted Christ, it's not you anymore. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you're washed. You're set apart as holy. You're declared as righteous in God as Jesus Christ is. And friends, that's good news on a Sunday in West Michigan, isn't it? Isn't that good news? washed, sanctified, justified. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gospel. How it changes us from the inside out. How it transforms us from the bondage of sin. How it brings us like Christ into Gethsemane where we yield our rights and brings us to the cross where we die to self so that we can be risen in newness of life. Lord, I pray that we would be more concerned about the unity of the church, the testimony of the gospel, and the glory of God than we are about our rights and about winning. God, may we be that kind of church because we are that kind of people. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, 